Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Marrow. Natalie Dupuis. Natalie Dupuis. Natalie Dupuis. <laughs> Natalie Dupuis is a needlework artist. Natalie Dupuis is a needlework artist who specializes in goldwork embroidery. Her first article in a series on goldwork appears in the Spring 22 issue of Piecework magazine. So, Natalie, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed your show over the years and I'm delighted to be a guest. Thank you so much. So, until recently, I thought that black work was just embroidery done with black thread and white work was just embroidery with white thread, but I've learned that that's not really the case. So, you specialize in gold work. What does that mean? Well, in this case, gold work typically traditionally has been done in gold thread. So that's an apt name. But uh, nowadays, it wouldn't be uncommon to find the name metalwork embroidery instead of gold work embroidery because gold work embroidery is a type, is a technique of embroidery where you can use gold threads, silver threads, copper threads. So any of the you know traditional metals but it can also be done with synthetic threads as well and colorful threads made with a metal base or a synthetic metal as well. And it's a technique where you have these precious threads that are stitched typically on the surface of the fabric only, meaning the threads don't go through to the back of the fabric, which is done in almost every other embroidery technique going through to the back, but not in gold work. You had an article in the most recent issue of Piecework about something called, is it or Nue? Very nice. Yeah, good pronunciation. Well done. <laughs> so this is one of the kind of cornerstones of uh, goldwork embroidery. I mean, goldwork embroidery is, a, is an umbrella term. And under that, there are many subcategories of goldwork embroidery. And or Nue is one of them. So or Nue embroidery uh, is a technique where you're stitching typically a thread called passing onto your fabric. And you stitch so much of this down that the gold thread or silver, gold or silver passing, becomes your ground fabric. And then on top of that, you apply silk threads. Traditionally, it's silk threads. Uh, in modern days, people will sometimes use cotton threads. And you create a figurative motif over top of your metal threads. So you've got this, this motif and shining through that is some gold or silver, depending on the angle that you're looking at uh, or the light reflection. Something quite beautiful. What are the different kinds of metalwork embroidery? Oh, right. Uh, Interesting question. So under this big umbrella term that I was mentioning, you can have your couching work, and one of them is Ornue. You can have something called diaper patterns, which is couching with patterns that have this lozenge look to it you know these diagonal lines that are crisscrossing diamond shape and there's hundreds of variations that are fun to play within that 
you could have another technique called Italian shading, which is also couching, but instead of couching in straight lines, which you would see in Ornoué embroidery, you're going to couch and follow the motif. So if it's a rabbit or if it's a flower, your, your couching thread follows along the contour and fills it in as well. And that creates a whole different play of light than with the Ornoué. And of course, there's other subcategories. There's something called underside couching. There's vermicelli. And then there's moving away from couching. There's something called cutwork embroidery, cutwork in goldwork embroidery. And this is when you're working with pearls. These are the hollow threads that can be treated like a bee. You cut it to size and you attach it over felt padding or string padding. So it's a bit more has some relief to it, whereas the ornue, the Italian shading, the diaper patterns are typically low relief or no relief. And then you have just what I would call play. You can use metal threads such as spangles. You can apply leather that has a metallic finish to it. So there's other aspects of goldwork embroidery that you can bring into your design. So it's quite fun to to bring in those elements as well. When I was first thinking of gold work, I think so much of this is about what do I assume just hearing the words. But when I spoke with Dr. Susan K. Williams at the Royal School of Needlework, a lot of the work that they're doing gold work is for coronation robes and the most lavish once in a lifetime things you've ever seen. But it sounds like what you're talking about is something that is somewhere along the continuum between fancy formal and playing with every day? Well, here's the thing. Goldwork embroidery is typically found in your ecclesiastical works, pieces for the military and pieces for the the royalty. These are the people that could afford the most expensive type of embroidery, which is goldwork embroidery. But nowadays, designers are taking these traditional techniques and creating modern motifs using the same threads same techniques, but a completely different design style, which I think is fantastic. You see the evolution of a technique and threads that are six, 800 years old being applied today to the, the modern taste. So even ecclesiastical work has evolved quite a lot in the last 50 years, if you look at the design style. But you know, certain houses like the, the Hand and Lock in, in the UK and the Royal School, they're taking commissions for organizations that ask for something specific. How did your interest in gold work evolve? Right. Great question. So I always like to do some kind of handwork. It started in, in high school when I took a home economics class and I learned how to sew. And then after that, it moved into doing some needlepoint and other handwork creations over the years. And then eventually I found myself at the Royal School of Needlework taking classes in silk embroidery and general surface embroidery. And I saw some samples of goldwork embroidery that the tutor had out. And at first I thought, oh, goodness, that's really gaudy looking. And I do not like that at all. But then as I started to explore books and pictures about it, it caught my attention. Something, something in my tastes changed. And I thought, this actually can be really fun to work with. And how can I manipulate these metal threads and make it match my taste? So I wanted to go into it from a very contemporary angle. But then over time, as I started to do some research, I went way back to the 1400s and started to really appreciate the style from there as well. 
So that's kind of funny how your, your tastes can evolve and what your interests are in a particular technique. Is Ornuay typically, say, scrolls and, and little, you know, buttons or ornaments? Or is it typically kind of like a painting, a painting of a figure or something like that? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely the traditional Ornuay embroidery you're having. It's a figurative motif. It's an ecclesiastical scene, a scene from the Bible, for example. You might have a number of figures, you'll have plants in the background, and this is all stitched one row at a time building up. So you can imagine, it's like a painting. You know, some literature will say that Ornuay embroidery came about because of the early Renaissance, when painters were discovering ways to represent important scenes, and it looked so real, and embroiderers wanted to be able to embrace that. And up until the early Renaissance, the goldwork that we see was quite broken up and fractured. And then so this method of having long, flat rows of metal thread and then stitching a scene on top of that uh, became a way to kind of imitate the enamelists and the early Renaissance painters. So it's interesting how one art form influenced another art form into something so beautiful. But if you think about, you know, the illuminated manuscripts and painters that were starting to use little bits of subtle gold and really shading in their work inspired a whole new type of needlework. So you mentioned that you sort of started learning this at the Royal School of Needlework. It sounds like this comes from a sort of a Northern European or, or English tradition. Is that right? Well, I mean, the English have been very well known for their metalwork embroidery, particularly in the Opus Anglicanum window. So we're talking pre-Renaissance when they were the leaders in terms of commissions for ecclesiastical embroidery. But yes, you're going to find this in France, in the Low Countries, Germany. You see a lot of goldwork embroidery coming from all these places, Spain, and each of them have a little bit of a, a, a different specialty. But you also find goldwork embroidery in India, China, Japan, the Middle East. So it comes from a lot of places. Anywhere people have gold and want to look nice seems like an opportunity for somehow adorning yourself with gold thread. Yeah. And, you know, through trade and the Silk Route, things get passed from one community to the next. And it's quite amazing to see how different aspects of metal thread embroidery have moved along from the East to the West. I noticed that you have recently been interested in Japanese needlework. Is that right? I do have a little bit of interest in Japanese embroidery, and that's actually how I came across your podcast, because I remember your very first one, you were interviewing Shea Pendre, who is well known in the Japanese embroidery community. So I do like this, but you know what got me into doing it is there are levels of Japanese embroidery. You have to pass certain levels to become proficient. And I noticed that level four is all goldwork embroidery. And I was at a lecture about it and said, aha, I'm going to learn Japanese embroidery so I can figure out how they do gold work in the Japanese style. So my, my journey began there. That's a lot of levels to get through <laughs> to get to your goal. Well, I think there's 10, uh, 10 or 11 before you, you can become a teacher of it. So I've never gone past level four. <laughs> I, I met my goal. <laughs> it seems like this is something that really came up in this workshop tradition where you'd have 
a commission by someone who had a lot of money one way or another. But you'd have to be able to afford the materials if you were going to do it for yourself. Yeah, I think it was very rarely done for yourself until recently, I would say in the last century. The materials are, are more expensive. And the knowledge, I think, was a bit held as, as a secret almost. And how was this done? And who were the embroiderers that might do this for pleasure? I mean, even now, if you're looking at embroidery kits, these ones are going to be of all the techniques, you know, compared to white work or cruel work or black work, the gold work ones are going to be the most expensive. But it is something that somebody could now say, decide that they wanted a gold work piece and actually execute it themselves. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You don't need to go. You don't need to go to a specialist workshop. You, you take a couple of classes and you become familiar with how to play with the threads and manipulate them in different ways. And then you can have a lot of fun making stuff on your own. And that's a real joy for me to see students who take a couple of classes and then they just go off and all kinds of creative adventures coming out of out of their Instagram feed <laughs> that I see afterwards. Are there very many people doing gold and metalwork embroidery these days? You know, that's a hard question to answer because in my world, I'm going to say, yes, I surround myself with people who like metal thread embroidery. So therefore, I think everybody likes this. This is brilliant. But I think it's pretty niche, to be honest. I think if you look at all the online courses that are out there and the different techniques that you can learn, I, I think this is one of the ones that people feel a bit intimidated to to try and then to put in the efforts that it takes to become good at the technique. And also metal thread embroidery is not a, a counted thread technique. And particularly in North America, I find a lot of embroiderers are a bit afraid to to try work that's not counted work, you know, the cross stitch, the needle point, the counted white work. So I think it's pretty niche. Let's be honest, at Long Thread Media, pretty much everything we do is considered niche by a large uh -huh. proportion of the population. True. But you're not the only person doing this, in other words. Right. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I almost would rephrase that. Like, is it is it relevant today? Is it still happening? And absolutely, uh, you can see it in haute couture. You can see it in still ecclesiastical and royal commissions and some really fabulous designers coming up with interesting ways to use the metal threads and also smaller projects that I think people can find accessible and contemporary ways to use it. So you can go down the contemporary gold work route or you can go down the traditional and and both are really fun and attract, again, their subcategories of people who are interested. So you mentioned different materials. What else characterizes more contemporary gold work? Right. So to be honest, the materials are the same. But let me tell you, the materials are something else. They're really fun. The thread that I use most often in my work is called passing thread. And that's been around for centuries. It wasn't called passing thread. So the names have evolved over time, depending on where they come from. Uh, but typically, you have a fiber core. It can be made of silk. could be made of animal gut. And then it's wrapped with a flattened metal alloy, you know, around and around and around a fiber core. And then this would be traditionally held onto the surface of the fabric with another thread. But every once in a while, you can pass it through the back of the fabric as well. Uh, but you, you risk damaging it, and it's expensive. So you, typically, it's held onto the surface. So that's that's one type. And then there's another type that's more like a ribbon. Imagine your gift wrap ribbon. And this is made of, of a metal that's just flattened, a strip of metal. It could be, you know, one millimeter wide, two millimeters. And then that's sewn onto the fabric and highly, highly reflective. 
there's other threads called pearls and there's and pearls not like the you know the white and the black pearls but a metal pearl looks like lots of little beads but it's essentially a coil um with no fiber core quite sturdy and that comes in in all different colors you can stretch it out you can put threads in between it um you can cut it into little bead shapes so that's really quite fun to work with and another fancy threads millery and twists where you are going to wrap together three strands to make a, a nice twist or two strands so the range of metal threads to play with is quite large but in conjunction with those metal threads you need to pair it with silk or cotton and that's where the fun really begins so you mentioned that gold work is a sort of a niche or specialty technique but even within that you mentioned that there's a couple different kinds how do you decide which of these I'm going to say rabbit holes with the most affection that I could possibly convey. But how do you decide which of these little rabbit holes you want to explore? Right. I think generally, if someone was to start metal thread embroidery, they take a general course or they they pick a design where they're going to be exposed to a few different areas of it. And then they see what catches their attention. And, you know, for me, when I was doing metal thread embroidery, just learning as a student, I really liked the couching stitch. I found it relaxing and I I found, you know, cut work, I found a, a little bit stressful. I didn't like it. So then obviously my interest in the couching stitch deepened and I looked into it a little bit and I realized that there's actually a lot of things that you can do with it. So I applied for a research grant from the, the EGA, the Embroiderers Guild of America, to help me write a paper you know, not too academic, but, you know, just an easy read paper looking at some of the subcategories of the couching stitch. And this led me into quite a long delve into the subcategory of Ornoué. And Ornoué, I really was attracted to for a number of reasons. One is that it looked pretty challenging. And I thought, right, how can I learn about this technique and what motifs work best in Ornoué and and what are some extant examples that are really impressive and of course th- this led me to the golden fleece vestments which are held in the imperial treasury in Vienna right now and this is a sample uh, a set of embroideries from the 1400s commissioned by Philip the Good in the area what's now known as the Netherlands and it's two large altar hangings and uh, a variety of vestments, copes and uh, a dalmatic. And if you look at the Ornoué that's done on there, it really kind of blows your mind in terms of execution, color selection, light play. And I'm also quite interested in the work of Van Eyck. So I look at the work of Van Eyck, I look at Ornoué, and I think, how can I use the shading of this artist and apply that to Ornoué pieces? And, you know, there's certainly a comparison between the two. And so then, you know, this now leads me into a further rabbit hole of, I wonder if I can take a little snippet of a Van Eyck painting of his painted clothing and turn that into an Ornoué piece and really zoom in and it almost becomes abstract. But this is fascinating to me. And I do have that in the pipeline, but it's quite exacting. Ornoué embroidery takes, I would say it's one of the techniques that takes the longest to do. It's one row at a time built up with careful color planning and knowledge of shading um, and how to render something in needlework as if it was 3D 
which is what the golden fleece specimens have been capable of doing. Because usually when I think of gold, you think, well, I just want that to be the center of attention and the focal point. But then when I look at your work, sometimes the gold part is so subtle and what really comes forward is red and blue. I think that's one of the things that can make gold work embroidery so nice is that it's not so, it doesn't have to be all bright gold. It can be a little bit of metal enhancing all the other colors that you use. So, you know, in that vein, I like to really think about the colors that I use, my silk threads, and how that's going to play with the gold and, and color interactions and light interactions with A, the metal, the later tarnished metal, and my silk threads that I'm using. The later tarnished metal. That's really interesting. Now, gold doesn't typically tarnish, right? Well, <laughs> depending on the circumstances that it's in and depending on the metal alloy, the original mix, because you're not working with pure gold here, right? then it would be far too expensive. Um, so yes, it will tarnish if you put it in direct sunlight. If you put it over your heater, you, you know, you've done an embroidery and you love it and it goes right over top of your heater, you're asking for trouble in certain damp conditions. Personally, I really like to work with silver because uh, I find it's a more neutral base to interact with my silk threads later, neutral in color, but that will tarnish a lot faster. And I've had some pieces that are only a couple of years old be quite a dark gray already. But I embrace that. I think that that's, it makes my pieces evolve. And I'm excited to see how they're going to look in the future with this patina. And do I like my color choices, meaning my silk and my cotton? Do I still like that once my metal thread has tarnished? So you were mentioning things like you can have metalized leather and different ways of having the metallic shine on the thread. How have these materials been made in the past? Like, was it once upon a time somebody was literally creating, you know, a very ductile, tiny piece of gold, and now we have other materials? Well, you'd be amazed at the way these threads are produced, very similar to the way they were produced hundreds of years ago. So there are two factories in the UK that make the metal threads. One is a Benton and Johnson, and the other is called Golden Threads. And they're actually on the heritage endangered craft list. Because they're so specialized, there are only two places that make it in the UK, and they're all made by hand by a tiny team. I'm talking single, one-hand team of members, and they're doing wire drawing, they're doing hand cranking, their machines are very old, and if they break down, they don't replace them. They figure out how to make them work again. I've had the privilege of going on a factory tour of the Benton & Johnson one. And it was a real privilege to see how these things are made and to know that every single thread that I order from them has gone through the hands of their three employees. And, and just to see the wire drawing and the machines at work and how long it takes for these things to be made. They're not made in advance. They're made to order because they tarnish. So you can't make up two years of supply and hope that it's still going to be spanking new by the time it arrives on your door a couple years later. So are you essentially couching down that metal thread with, I guess maybe couching isn't the right word, but with the silk and cotton? You're exactly right. The main stitch used in metal thread embroidery is the couching stitch. And what this means is you place your metal thread on the surface of your fabric. You come up through the back of the fabric with your needle threaded with silk or cotton, and then you go over top of the metal thread. And that's what holds it onto the surface of the fabric. And I had a course on the couching stitch. And you think a whole course on one stitch, how can that be possible? 
but it's possible because there's many variations of the couching stitch and different ways that you can apply it to holding the metal threads and they all create a different effect. So perfection of the couching stitch is not very hard. The challenge is thinking of how are you going to use it to create the effect that you want. What else is couching used for besides besides gold work? I was just thinking that, you know, sometimes I see couching with just other kinds of embroidery. Are there other techniques that involve couching? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of the things I want to I try and remind my students of when they're doing metal thread embroidery. said, so you can practice this with cruel wool. In cruel embroidery, there's a lot of couching that they do. And I also see it in needlepoint as well and canvas work on top of their finished. I've even seen some Ornoué embroidery, very modern, of course, then apply with further couching other materials on top. So think of the couching stitch can be used for anything. If I have a sprig of lavender and I want to attach that to my work, I'm going to attach it using the couching stitch. So you see it in, in lattice work and other types of laid work. So it's a really accessible stitch and it is used in a variety of techniques. It sounds like this is something that you plan out and sketch out. Sometimes when you think of contemporary embroidery, it's a little bit more sort of freeform and spontaneous. And it seems like with the the coordination that this is something you plan out in advance. I mean, I do, but that doesn't mean that everybody does it that way. I have seen some fantastic designers that kind of put their metal thread down and just couch it down following along wherever the thread wants to go. And it looks really interesting. To me, I tend to go with more kind of stylized figurative motifs. So, you know, there's a lot of planning in that. But I think both ways of approaching it are quite fun. One is more exploration and the other one is is creating something a bit you know easier to recognize, flower, a bird, etc. And what kind of scale are you looking at? Sometimes it's hard to tell when you look at embroidery, when you're looking at very fine threads. Is it something where it's like the size of one of the wires on my microphone or is it something right. that's a little bigger? Yeah. So the threads are fairly fine. The passing thread I, I work with is about a millimeter. I don't know what that is in fractions of an inch, but very fine, you know, finer than the the wires on my on my headphones. So typically the couching stitch is used in a pair over passing thread. So that can give you a bit more bulk. But all the threads that I mentioned already, that they, they come in many sizes. So you can get it so, so, so tiny, like a, you know, a, a timbre thread, or you can get a much thicker one that maybe is up to two millimeters wide. And that doesn't sound much thicker, but when you're spending hours and hours couching row after row, that does make a difference. And so you mentioned ecclesiastical work, but I've noticed that some of the things that you're designing are maybe for framing. I don't know. I've been thinking about how do we live with embroidery? Yeah, that's a good question. Do you create something that's for framing, for hanging, for use? The thing with metal thread embroidery is because you can't wash it you're not really going to put it on something that you're going to wear daily. You're probably going to find it nowadays. I see it in framed pieces that go on the wall, sometimes on a tote bag, sometimes like on a, on a collar or a cuff. But you have to think to yourself, how am I going to wash this item and care for it? So my items tend to be wall pieces. And I have a bag, for example, a little tote bag that I made, and it has a, a geometric pattern that's couched on the front in silver threads. And I've said to myself, 
I'm at peace with the fact that if this bag gets dirty, I need to spot wash it because it's never, ever going in the washing machine. You can't wash your, your gold work. And luckily, my gold work pieces are fairly small. So <laughs> I can I have a lot of room on my walls. And sometimes I turn them into little brooches. I do see gold work embroidery as, as brooches and hair pieces, which are quite nice as well. I think of embroidery as being so tactile. And of course, when you are stitching, it's tactile. But then when we think about ecclesiastical pieces, it's certainly, you know, look, but don't touch. What does it feel like? The metal threads, they feel, people will say that they're fragile. But actually, when you have it in your hand and you're working with it, it feels, it has some body to it. It has some strength compared to a very very fine silk thread that you can hardly feel. It just goes right through your fingers. But the uh, the metal threads, they, they have some body. You can really manipulate them and you can be the boss of them, even though they've got this, you know, robustness about them, which is kind of fun. Is it something that you'd want a pet like you would say silk shading or is it something that feels more kind of gritty? I don't know why I'm fascinated by this, but the idea of like, <laughs> Something soft and something hard right. together. Yeah. I think people look at it and they're kind of afraid to touch it because they don't know what they're going to get. But, you know, a piece of silk shading or black work, you kind of know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel some linen here and some cotton thread. But they look at metal thread and bread like, ooh, what is that? Is that hard? Is it soft? Am I going to damage it? So I think it depends on if you're the type of person that likes a lot of bling and really bright, you're going to be kind of like like a crow and you're going to want to touch it and feel it and, uh, and and play. So are you doing this mostly as a studio practice and then also teaching it? Yes. So my background is, a, is as a teacher. What I really love to do is teach. I've always been a teacher since my early 20s, working in private schools, public schools, international schools. I, I taught in France and England and Canada, just as a regular school teacher, you know, grade three. And then I went into becoming a, a teacher trainer because I like conveying and sharing the information that I know. I also love to plan. I love to set up something that my students can access and have a wow experience. I get a real thrill from that. I don't know why I just do. So it became natural for me once I had children to move into teaching embroidery. I love embroidery. I love teaching. I didn't want to go back to teaching in public schools. Therefore, you know, the new route. So first I thought I need to have set designs and my students, they can learn the technique and copy my design. And then that evolved into, well, I want to do something a bit more with my teaching experience. My master's is in, in education in curriculum design. I thought, how can I design something for my students where they can learn a bit more, have a bit more meat to their learning? And um, so I developed some longer courses that were not set designs. It was more on technique and how can we explore and what can you create on your own and how can I support you in that? And then, of course, I have some pieces that are mostly just for me. But in the end, those pieces sometimes end up turning into courses as well because I've fallen in love with them and I've spent so much time with them. And I wonder, how can I share that experience with my students? For example, I created something for an aunt last year, one of my aunts. And what I created for her was a set of, we'll call them, you know, mini ribbons, the type you would often see in, in the military on, on a uniform. But I created a set for her based on her life. 
her life achievements and the things that I thought were really special for her. And I, I thought about the color and I made this set for her and it was just meant to be a personal gift to her. But it was such a meaningful experience. I thought, you know what, I want to try and, and turn that into a course as well and let students design something for someone meaningful. And, and if they didn't have someone meaningful in their life, they could pick a favorite character or a historical figure, et cetera. And it didn't need to be a set design and the students can kind of go anywhere they want to. And I just love that idea of, of guiding them on that journey uh, in creating something meaningful. What brings people to Goldwork Embroidery? Is it just sort of that they enjoy various embroidery techniques? Do they see something that, that you've made and say, I really want to do that? I think in a lot of cases, people are quite design driven. So they'll see something they like and it doesn't matter what the technique is and they say, I want to know how to make that. And I'm guilty of that too. I'll see something in white work and say, ooh, I don't really know how to do white work, but I really like that design. I'm going to learn how to do that. And then I can apply it to something in the future. Who knows what? So I think a design often grabs people's attention. And then over time, as you, you build your name as an instructor, I think people say, oh, okay, I want, to, I want to have an experience with this instructor and see what can they bring that's new to my own practice. In a lot of ways, the way that we are learning online seems really well suited to needlework instruction because it's something that you need to do in a very up close and intimate way. So showing, holding something up to the camera is something much better that you could do without running around a huge room and with a microscope, practically. Yeah, I have to say in the last two years, I've run a number of online courses. And for my students who A, can't travel or B, don't want to travel and, you know, pay for all the expenses associated with that. It's really been a godsend for them. And they're so happy to be able to see my work up close. They're not five of them crowded around me and they're getting kind of a half experience where they can't really actually see what I'm doing, but they're all trying. Um, you know, I've got good equipment and I can zoom right in. The students can see in a way that they've never seen before. So, you know, although we're not they're breathing on each other and enjoying each other's real presence in terms of learning i actually think they get more out of the online experience so they lose one thing but they gain something else and i'm very happy to keep teaching online and in person i think the two are here to stay what do people typically have difficulty with when picking up goldwork embroidery i assume that you know nobody does this as their very first needlework experience I don't think so. I think most people have a base in something, some kind of handwork. It could, I, I do, I have had quilters come without, you know, hand embroidery, but they, they've done some hand quilting and, you know, they're familiar with threads and, you know, it's not a surprise to them to uh, manipulate their thread into their needle and start and finish threads, that kind of thing. But what do people find difficult? There's a number of things. One, um, people struggle with lighting and how to manage the reflection of the metal thread with their magnifier and lamp, which they usually have on, particularly if they need to stitch in the evening. So sometimes you get such a glare from the metal thread that that's difficult for the eyes. And then the other thing I think is precision of the couching stitch. It looks best when you're able to, you know, really work at a 90 degree angle. You've got your metal threads and you've got, you know, your couching thread at a 90 degree angle and spacing it the way that you intend. So it can be spaced in such a way that it's very regular and geometric, or it can be free and, and that, you know, then you don't have so much to worry about. So it, it depends on the look that you're going for. But I, I think students struggle with that. I also have had students who struggle with non-regular spacing because they're so used to counted work and being told exactly where to place their stitch. So sometimes 
I'll have a design that's a bit more free and they have to really push themselves to say, I'm not going to do a repeated pattern here. <laughs> I'm going to be free with my stitching and my color choice. So you mentioned a little bit being inspired by a Van Eyck painting. Where do your design ideas typically come from? I love this question. And I love hearing other artists answer that question as well, because sometimes they have a very concrete answer. You know, I always get inspired by nature or whatever I see out my back window. And for me, it can be anything. And I'm always surprised where these ideas come from. You know, one time I was I was reading something about typeface and this inspired a whole new embroidery using little chippings of metal thread in Braille. And I'm not sure how my brain made that connection, but it did. I thought, how fun would it be to create this this uh, embroidery where someone who was visually impaired could actually run their hands over my embroidery and read my message. Um, And other times it can be looking at a painting. And a lot of times though, it's from taking my own art classes. Um, I take watercolor classes and drawing classes. And sometimes my instructor will put up work of other artists and that will trigger another idea. I was once in a class where we were studying the work of Turner and she showed an exhibit that was on at the Tate Museum of an Icelandic Danish artist, Olifer Eliasson, and he, the way he deconstructed a painting and took all the colors out and made something abstract just based on the colors. And of course, this triggered something in me. Oh, I think I can do that in goldwork embroidery and abstraction of colors. How cool would that be to do something? So it really can come from anywhere. And I'm always surprised where it is. I don't ever sit down and say, I need an idea and start thinking about an idea. I just wait until it comes on me. And luckily, I have a little notebook. And the notebook doesn't come around with me everywhere. But as soon as I get the idea, as soon as I get home, I put it down. And then I can come back to those ideas later on. Because of course, there's always more ideas than we actually have time to realize, but archive them for later. You mentioned you're a planner, so I wondered if you had a a list of things you were interested in exploring. I noticed recently that on your Instagram feed, you have been looking at the color wheel and over your shoulder, there's a (laughs) traditional shaded color wheel. Right. Yeah, I am quite interested in color theory. And this probably stemmed from my watercolor classes and learning about paint names and how my colors could interact on paper. And then I started taking some really focused color theory classes and reading about color theory. And this led me to the understanding that color theory, having a basic understanding of it as a needle worker, if you're going to do any original designs is really important. Uh, Just so you understand what makes a good color choice and what's going to happen if I use this color versus that color, or if I have this as my ground fabric you know, what happens, what are the tricks that my eyes do on me as the viewer or my, you know, my potential viewers if I hang my work in an art gallery, for example. So this led me to want to be able to share this knowledge in an easy way for my students, because I think a lot of people think you need to go to art school to understand color theory. And you don't, you just need to have someone give you an explanation and have time playing with colors yourself. I think those are two words that scare a lot of people. Theory, because it sounds, you know, scientific or somehow experimental. And boring. And color is one of those things that people respond to. Yeah. It's one of the first things we learn. And yet somehow it's terrifying. Yeah. But, you know, it's not. And once you have a general, very general overview, 
you realize that you can dig as far as you want down the world into the world of color theory, or you, just a, a general understanding will help you become a better a designer of your own pieces. I think a lot of people, they don't want to try doing their own pieces because they are afraid they're going to make a color mistake. And it's not that there are hard and fast rules. It's just that certain colors provoke certain reactions and traditionally behave together in certain ways. And having an understanding of that, I think, would make people feel more comfortable in their color decisions. What you're doing when you choose different colors for for couching is blending color in a much different way than you would with a paintbrush. It's true. But to be honest, my watercolor classes have really helped me in my understanding of my color choices in my needlework. Because, you know, with the watercolor, you're layering colors, you're glazing, right? You have one layer on top of the other. But with couching, you have to think about blocks of color and how those colors beside each other are going to interact. And will there be an impact of my metal thread reflecting those colors as well? And how much lightness do you want to bring to your silk or cotton threads as you let the metal shine through them? You know, in weaving, there's that similar idea of having blocks and how they shade together. Whereas in spinning, you can, in weaving, you can dye things as well, but in spinning, you can blend the fiber. And so you shade color that way. Yeah. So it's interesting. It seems like this is a little bit more like the weaving idea. Yes. I mean, in a way, there are some threads that you can actually blend together in your needle. The Japanese filament silks, which are made of many individual fibers, you can separate them and then you can put back together different values of them. And that becomes something really exciting when working with the silk threads. When you're working with like a DMC cotton thread, you're not necessarily blending, but you're you're layering and you're having an overall, your your eye has an overall mix of those colors. So for every different color and one of, I suppose this is a silly question because everybody embroidery has this, but you might have a different color for every couching stitch that you're doing in a piece. I could, (laughs) depending on how many needles I want to have on the go, of course, and how much depth do I want to have? For example, if I want it to look three-dimensional, I cannot use only one shade of red. I'm going to need to have at least three. (laughs) So that's kind of fun to, to manage your needles and think about how many colors do you want? Do you want your piece to have depth or not? So these are all choices that you get to make as a needle worker. That's a lot of ends to weave in. And I don't know why that strikes me, except that with the couching stitch and the metal thread, the amount of the thread that you're using for the couching stitch is a fairly small proportion. So you have this tiny bit of colored thread and... Teeny tiny stitch, right? Yeah. And you, yeah, you're going to need a lot of them. If, if anybody has a chance to look at some Ornue pieces, and particularly, you know, maybe zoom in on some good quality photos, you'll see there are thousands and thousands of stitches to create a motif. And as I said, I find that very relaxing. I don't find that intimidating because it's only one stitch. Think about some of these very large cross stitch pieces that people take on. You know, typically it's one or two or three stitches, uh, you know, the the regular cross and then the half cross, etc. And it's very repetitive, lots and lots of colors, but it's not intimidating. You know, you're going you know, a little bit at a time, you're building up the image, and that can be quite exciting. So when you are designing a piece, what is the mechanism for it? Do you start with a sketch and start turning that into a blueprint? Yeah, so I start with the drawing. And my 
I love designing. I'd have to say I love designing a piece as much as stitching, sometimes even more. Sometimes I'll design pieces and then I won't actually stitch them. Yeah, I'll just archive it for later. But the process of designing was so fun. So for me, the line drawing is, is the core. I really need to like the flow of my line in the overall design. So until I get that just basic black and white line drawing, nothing else can happen. So I've got my line drawing. And then after that, I'll take out my, either my watercolors or my coloring pencils and I'll color in the picture how I imagine it looking. And luckily I happen to have come across some really nice gold and silver watercolors. So I can add those to the piece to give it a little bit of illumination as well. And then after that, I think about my metal threads, which thread, because each of the metal threads that you choose has a different texture. So which thread am I going to use to create the impression that I want my viewers to have when I'm looking, when they're looking at the piece? And then how much color do I want to have? How much of the metal do I want to cover up uh, so that enough color shines through? Of course, you know, there are gold work embroideries that are only gold and they'll use like a, a yellowish a Guterman thread to hold their metal threads onto the fabric. So it's all done in gold. For example, if you do the gold work module at the RSN in their certificate piece, you're only allowed to use gold. So there's no color allowed. So you have to be creative with your textures and your line flow to create something that's a wow factor. And then later on, as you advance, you're allowed to introduce color and other types of metal threads. So yeah, that's my, my general process there. Inspiration, line drawing, coloring it in, thinking about the textures, and then pulling out the threads. You mentioned that you had to really like your line first. Some of the pictures I've seen have the uh, the passing thread just in these very straight parallel lines. Right. And yet there are others where it curves and makes more of a, a shape in the couching. Right. And that's where I mentioned earlier about the ornue, which is the straight lines versus uh, the Italian shading, which is following the, the curved outline. So you might see a leaf or, you know, or even it could be something simple like a heart and filling it in the shape of the heart around and around and around. And that's your outline. Whereas ornue, you can imagine a block of metal thread laid down. And then you've got your your picture that shows up on top of that. Uh, so I, you know, I had one a couple of years ago that was some Christmas ornaments. And so when I'm talking about the line drawing, that's important to me. I'm talking about the, the drawing of the ornaments. What am I going to make appear on top of my ground fabric, which is essentially the gold or the silver? Because with Ornue, your metal thread covers the whole of the background. That becomes your background fabric. I'm just picturing having to decide between I want a color and I want and I want the gold that is essentially the material that this whole technique is named for. And, and you have to make that choice over and over again. Yeah. And my students often ask me and they say, well, how many couching stitches should I put? And I say, uh, 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 I'm not telling you the answer to that. <laughs> that is absolutely a question of taste. You know, how strong do you want your colorful figurative motif to come through? Or how much do you want to let the metal sing? It's really up to you. So between the, the metal thread has to stay on the ground fabric and you can't see any of the metal at all, somewhere in there is the, is the right answer that you have to choose. Well, you know what's funny, though? You can also you can find Ornoy embroideries where they have 100% covered the metal thread with their couching stitch. 
And I look at these and say, well, why in the world would they do that? Why don't they just use a cord underneath instead? And in this case, I guess they were looking for texture. You know, it creates like a um, like a rippled effect, a corrugated cardboard corduroy look to it. So it gives a different texture. Um, but then I've also seen others where there's just a hint of color and just enough to hold the metal threads on the surface. That seems like the ultimate in inconspicuous consumption to entirely cover up your gold thread. Yeah. But um, what's kind of fun is a piece that's almost covered up entirely, but then there's like a small sections that are not. And you say, what is happening there? What is creating that? How fun is that? And, you know, what's interesting about what we'll call it flat couch pieces like Ornue is very flat is depending on the light that you're viewing this piece or that, you know, someone is wearing this piece, for example, on a, on a cope in a church, it might not look shiny at all. And that's when you see a lot of the colors. And then the wearer or the viewer will turn and see it on a different angle. And it's really brilliant shining out at you. So how fun that kind of on-off feature that you can have and play with. I had no idea that a conversation about gold work was going to turn out to be so much about color. Yeah, well, I mean, there's gold work that is not about color. And then there's gold work, what I would say is the majority of it, which is a lot about color and light play. And uh, these two, if you are willing to explore and experiment, can give you some lovely surprises. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed your article and piecework, and I can't wait to find out about the other techniques that we're going to learn about soon. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Trinway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.